You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the China Geopolitics Podcast. And by that, I mean the final edition. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor of the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Before we get started, let me spin the dials on the Wayback Machine and give you 30 seconds of our very first episode published on the 30th of August 2019. I'm Finbar Birmingham from the Political Economy Desk at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And let me get straight down to business. This is a weekly podcast that does exactly what it says on the label. We've been covering the weaponization of trade policy between the United States and China ever since Donald Trump announced his first round of tariffs in May 2018. So here we are, three years and five months later, and Donald Trump is no longer US president. He's more like a nagging ailment that continually flares up to afflict the American body politic. But the trade war he started with China has not only continued, it's expanded to new fronts. Here's our then political economy editor, the late great John Carter, talking on this program in 2020, assessing the policies of the new Biden administration seven months after we changed the name of the podcast to reflect an increasingly global perspective on China's geopolitical relationships. A month ago, even a couple of weeks ago, we were vaguely talking about a Cold War. I think we can say pretty definitively we have arrived at what looks to be a Cold War. We started with the uh, trade war and then uh, beginnings of a tech war, and this is the latest chapter in the tech war. Also, the financial war is heating up. The U.S. Senate has passed legislation that will require uh, Chinese companies listed in America to comply with uh, U.S. accounting standards by 2022, and if they don't, they must delist and leave America. Uh, that's that's the beginning of what is potentially the next chapter in this emerging Cold War. And here we are in January 2023, standing on the verge of the year of the rabbit. John Carter's forecast of an impending finance war passed without incident. In December last year, the financial watchdog of Wall Street, the U.S. Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, announced it had received full access to China-based audit firms for parent companies of US-listed companies from China. But the tech war continues to escalate. Our technology desk editor, Joe Sin, will be here to report on how the governments of Japan and South Korea appear to have become fully-fledged allies in Joe Biden's ongoing tech war on China. That's making things really complicated for Korean and Japanese companies with massive investments in China, but also for Koreans and Japanese wanting to travel to China now the borders are open. And you'll also hear about a trade war that was never made official. After two and a half years of Beijing's unofficial bans and massive tariff increases on Australian exports of everything from coal to barley, beef, wine and lobsters, and after delivering a list of 14 grievances it wanted the Australian government to address, maybe it's over. My colleague Candy Wong is going to be in to talk about that, and she's got a story that defies the China versus Australia narrative. It's about the partnership happening between the two countries over the mining and processing of lithium. And now the US Congress has finally elected Kevin McCarthy as the new Speaker of the House. You'll hear me ask our North American Bureau Chief what a headline-hungry bunch of radical right-wing Republicans and a 21st century McCarthy era mean for the future of China-US relations. So given this is our last hurrah, our final episode, let me mark this auspicious occasion and bring in a special co-host. 
I spent the first year of the pandemic recording with Kinling Lo in lounge rooms and hotels in Hong Kong, and then spent the last two years getting her on the line from Washington, D.C., and then Beijing. Kinling, it's great to see you here in person in our studio. Welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here again. So Kinling, in just a minute or two, we're going to hear my early morning chat with our colleague Rob Delaney in Washington, D.C. And there's a question I asked him I'd like to ask you because you have the unique experience of working in both our Washington and Beijing bureaus. And here's my question. Are we seeing a turning point and an evolution of Chinese diplomacy? And by that, I mean this thing known as wolf warrior diplomacy, this term referencing the action movie from 2015 that's essentially a Chinese version of Rambo meets Chuck Norris. Are they putting their guns down? Is the wolf warrior diplomacy ended or changing? There have been a lot of changes in China's foreign policy field these days, including the latest being China's very controversial foreign ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian, who has been posted to another position in the ministry to manage China's border issues and will be stepping down from the front line of speaking and defending China's foreign policies. He was known as one of China's most outspoken world warriors, a name that was given to China's diplomats um, since, I guess, a few years ago, when people saw a change of style from Chinese diplomats being known as being very practical to be giving very combative and aggressive quotes publicly. And Zhao was the most well-known um, Chinese diplomats that have ab- adopted this style. Or we can even say he was one of the pioneers who started this style uh, at first on Twitter when he was still a diplomat for China in Pakistan. Many people have started to pay attention to this style change of China's diplomacy Having him moved away from being the face of China's diplomacy now have sparked further discussion on whether China is actually feeling a negative consequence from adopting this combative and aggressive uh, style of diplomacy. The other two have been seen as being more diplomatic, I guess, more close to the usual Chinese style that people would believe is more conventional uh, before the whole world warrior style. Can I just jump in and ask you something about you as a diplomatic journalist, you know, following these different ambassadors and members of the the foreign affairs ministry, have you seen a, a real change, a pivot towards using Twitter to communicate China's message to the West, essentially. I, don't, I know you're, you're across WeChat, you're across Weibo, you're across all these Chinese social media platforms. But in the last couple of years, have you seen the real pivot towards using Twitter to, to communicate the message? It was actually a really obvious change of Chinese diplomats starting to use Twitter. I really hope somebody in the academia would, would do a research on this because I do think it's very, very interesting. Actually, Kinling, I know we have a lot of academics listening to this podcast. So tell us more. What have you observed about China's ambassadors and foreign affairs types on Twitter? My brief observation was that many Chinese embassies and diplomats have been starting to use Twitter more frequently or opening Twitter accounts starting from the year 2019. And that actually coincided with the time when the Hong Kong protest happened. At that time, a lot of diplomats started to use Twitter to retweet China's official stance. And it also was the year when China-U.S. relations started to really, really go down from the trade war that began a year earlier. So I can't say these would be 
definitely the particular incidents that sparked the frequent usage of Twitter. But I do think that how China's rise to the world stage and China's increasingly difficult relations with the U.S. have prompted them to see the need to also make their voices heard on an international platform other than just to convince their local audience. You know, I was just checking yesterday. Hua Chunying now has 2 million followers on Twitter and Zhao Lijian has 1.9 million. So, you know, these are big numbers. They are big numbers. And I'm just trying to think of how big a number uh, is involved in Elon Musk's investment in Tesla plants in mainland China. That's itself a whole other podcast. But let's have a listen right now to the chat I recorded with Rob Delaney early in the morning from our Washington, D.C. bureau. People often wonder why my voice sounds different when I speak to our North American Bureau Chief Rob Delaney. It's because normally it's very early in the morning Hong Kong time or late in the evening. So it's good morning from Hong Kong and good evening to Washington, D.C. And Happy New Year, Rob Delaney. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. It's great to be in touch with you again. And Happy New Year to you also. And good morning, by the way. Fabulous. Thank you. And uh, can I start with the news that's it's happening right now as we speak in, in D.C.? Uh, and that is that Anthony Blinken and Lloyd Austin are meeting their Japanese counterparts for what sounds like a major announcement for when Prime Minister Kishida lands in Washington, D.C., on Friday, as people are hearing this podcast, there's been substantial discussion and reporting by our colleague Maria Xiao in the SEMP about Japan's increasing defence spending and stance. What can you tell us about what's happening? Uh, well, the details are just coming in, and, and we have my colleague, uh, uh, Mark Monnier, who's covering the story, but uh, really it's just what we've heard is simply that at this uh, at this meeting today in DC you had secretary of state antony blinken you had defense secretary lloyd austin meeting with their counterparts here in the capital and the two sides agreed to substantially strengthen their security ties and that includes a lot of things again these uh, these details are just coming out but one of them is really just that they are sort of expanding the scope of the the us japan security treaty which calls on each side to come to each uh, other defense, they're extending this to space. And that, of course, recognizes the ability that China has to strike down satellites or otherwise launch an attack up in that frontier. There are also to better integrate operations. They're talking about a new combined military headquarters, a U.S. Marine littoral regiment in Okinawa by 2025 akin to the U.S.-South Korea arrangement. So there's a lot going on in how they're going to strengthen the relationship. And of course, so much of this is, is really related to the concern that they have about uh, China. And it also is just an extension of the Biden administration's policy of really strengthening these alliances in a way that we haven't seen in quite a long time. And it's fascinating that this comes on top of, you know, the news we had over the new year period of the PLA Navy sailing its Liaoning aircraft carrier through that island chain south of Japan, south of Okinawa. But we've also just seen that increasing military development along these islands. And it's just, this is all about Taiwan, isn't it? Well, it's part of it, for sure. It's a big part of it. More broadly, though, it's it's about pulling together an effective counterweight to the quite substantial military advances that we've seen from China, both in their Navy, in their hypersonic missile abilities, in their nuclear capability. It's kind of about all of this. 
Well, let me turn back to what happened last week because last week I told our listeners that we would hold off on a chat with you until the US Congress could figure out who was going to be its speaker. After 15 votes in an exercise of what we could call marathon democracy, the Republican Kevin McCarthy is now Speaker of the House and one of the first things he's done is form a committee aimed at, quote, addressing the multifaceted threats that China poses to the United States. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah, I I would say, though, we should back up for a minute and note that those 15 rounds of voting in order to finally get him into that position was really unprecedented and I think took everyone by surprise. I, I think it was clear that the right flank of the Republican Party was going to make it difficult, but no one was expecting for this drama to run across an entire week into the uh, very late hours in, uh, on Friday. But the upshot of all of this is just that the right flank of the Republican Party has a lot more strength. They forced McCarthy to change a lot of the rules in the way that they run the House so that he will no longer have the ability, as previous speakers have, to just put an end to debates on issues like spending bills, on issues like decisions to raise the debt ceiling by just sort of banging his his gavel. And now the rules have changed to, to weaken him to the point that anyone can weigh in, anyone can put up a fight about these basic tasks that need to be done in order to run the U.S. government. So we could certainly expect to see a lot more animosity in the chamber. We'll likely see a lot of holdouts uh, for measures that just absolutely need to pass. And then on the China front, of course, one of the first things that they did after McCarthy was in place was to create this new committee that is all about looking at China. It doesn't actually have legislative ability, so it doesn't, it's not like a law was passed, it's just a committee was formed. So that really gives the Republicans in the chamber power to basically hold hearings. They'll be able to coordinate better between the longstanding committees like the Ways and Means Committee and the, the Foreign Affairs Committee and the Armed Services Committee to bring all of them together to hold hearings on issues that they think are very important with regard to China. So, And it could be on any front. It could be military. It could be economic. It could be diplomatic. And so it's basically creating a stage in the House on which Republicans that have grievances about China, and we know there are many of them, (laughs) uh, can call witnesses, and then ultimately they would use this platform or they would use this stage to make recommendations within the chamber, which then, of course, could lead to laws. How many laws? We don't know. And I think it's important to point out that when they voted to create this commission, of course, it passed easily because there was a lot of democratic support that went along with it. But the only ones who opposed this measure were Democrats. And some of them were the most vocal lawmakers when it comes to China, that is vocal in terms of wanting to push back on China and really raising their concerns about China. But I think their concern is that the way they're doing this risks creating a backlash against Chinese people in the U.S. and perhaps against the Asian American community. And they're concerned that this becomes so incredibly politicized that it goes out of the bounds of what's reasonable in order to deal with these uh, perceived threats from China. Rob, I'm no great 
student of American history, but I do know that the name McCarthy and the idea of holding <laughs> committees uh, based on very political views really has some sort of chilling resonance through the decades, going back to the 1950s. Is there any, is anyone talking about that kind of thing, like this idea of a new McCarthyism? I mean, certainly with, with the vote, I mean, this measure passed 365 to 65. So no one's pushing back with that argument at this point. I think the atmosphere in Congress these days is so hyper-partisan and the volume is, is so high at this point that no one seemingly has time to go into American history and have a detailed, nuanced discussion about that a very unpleasant bit of history. But point well taken uh, with, with those who remember how damaging the McCarthy hearings were back in the 50s. No, there wasn't anyone, uh, you know, the, again, the objections to this committee were really on the grounds that the consequences or the outcomes might go far beyond what is called for or you know what is reasonable or what makes sense in terms of countering China. And certainly when you talk about the right wing flank of the Republican Party, you know, folks like Matt Gates, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, these are folks that just really don't care. You can call them anything. With the exception of Lauren Boebert, you know, if you want to go to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, they come from districts where they're not going to see any consequences for whatever trouble they're stirring up, for whatever roadblocks and whatever chaos they cause. Their constituents are not going to throw them out of office for that. You can call them McCarthyites, like new McCarthyites, referencing what happened in the 50s, but that possibly will only strengthen them. So, Rob, let me do a flip side on this in terms of politics and talk diplomacy. We had Ching Gung leave his post as ambassador to the US, and now is the foreign minister for China. But on his departure from Washington, D.C., he wrote something of the, the love letter that we, we quoted last week in our episode in the Washington Post. And I was just wondering, from your perspective, what does this mean? Does it Was it just a sort of throwaway letter on the way out, or is this a sign that the wolf warrior era of diplomacy from China is, if not ending, changing. Yeah, I don't think anything that Beijing does just is throwaway. <laughs> so I would say I think we do need to see it in light of the apparent disappearance of this wolf warrior approach to diplomacy that China has been known for for the past, uh, I don't know, let's call it a decade. You know, we've seen evidence everywhere recently of Beijing taking a much softer tone in diplomacy, a more moderate tone in diplomacy. And this was exactly that. But it's, it's also important to note that the tone of the letter, the content of the letter was interesting because it, it very much talked about the pleasant experiences that he had traveling around different parts of the U.S. You know, he mentions a corn and soybean farm in Missouri, for example, how deeply moved he was by his host's sincerity and hospitality. He talked about uh, driving a John Deere tractor. You know, it's not too difficult to, to really put those thoughts together and say, hey, all of you lawmakers and policymakers who have had it out for China in recent years and have taken all of these steps, you know, including sanctions, including export restrictions, you don't seem to understand how much the rest of your countrymen depend on China for markets, for the tractors, for the corn, for the soybeans. So I think that message was kind of implicit in the editorial 
that he put in the in the Washington Post. But I think having said all of that, it was absolutely a, a different tone that Jean Gong struck in terms of what we've heard uh, in earlier in 2022 and in, in let's say in, in the past five years. Let's talk about the diplomatic agenda coming up, Rob. Between the two governments, US and China, do we see Anthony Blinken heading to Beijing soon? It was kind of promised at the end of last year that that was on the agenda. Is there any discussion about that? Well, the two sides are signaling that they are doing work that's needed to to make the, the visit happen. I believe as both sides have said that that would happen sometime in January or February. Of course, we're heading right into the Lunar New Year period now, so it looks very unlikely that Blinken would head over to Beijing much before the very end of January. So there's nothing, we don't have any indication yet that the meeting is becoming derailed, but things can happen quite quickly, as we know. We've seen, for example, a bit of a difference of opinion about the U-turn on the zero COVID policy in China. There was some suggestion, it's very diplomatic so far, but suggestion that China is just not interested in taking the mRNA vaccines that the U.S. government is offering in terms of support. There's been a bit of a back and forth on that issue with, uh, with China saying, thank you very much, but our vaccines are quite effective also, and we're getting through this. So I guess what I would say about all of this is just that this kind of disagreement, this kind of spat, I think if it was happening six months ago, it would have been much uglier. I think you would have had the Chinese side accusing the U.S. of of trying to make China look bad. You probably would have had the U.S. side saying uh, more explicitly that that China's putting its face ahead of the health of its people. Uh, you know, I, I would have envisioned that kind of argument playing out between the two sides, but it's actually been quite diplomatic. And that suggests to me that both sides seem to have the intent to follow through with this with this visit. It's fascinating bringing the pandemic there, Rob, and the politics involved. We've, of course, covered all the developing aspects of that over these past years, a PPE diplomacy, a vaccine diplomacy, vaccine competition between the US and China around the world uh, to supply different nations with their own vaccines. Sounds like a very interesting year ahead, a very interesting year of the rabbit ahead. Thank you very much. And this being our last episode, we'll be speaking to you again probably in another podcast. But Rob, for all the times you've woken up early and stayed up late for us, Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate all your work, too. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. When we started this podcast in 2019, our regular guest was Joe Sin, back when he was co-editor of our political economy desk. He subsequently evolved into our tech desk editor and continues to offer substantial on and off the record assistance to me on this podcast. Joe Sin, welcome back. Thank you, Jared. Joe Sin, you've contributed substantial analysis on the US CHIPS Act, as well as the US efforts to restrict China from accessing semiconductor technology last year. What's your overview of that effort now? Has Biden succeeded in building an alliance of Europe, Japan, and South Korea to thwart China's ambitions? 
Well, Jared, I think it's too early to say that because this so-called chip war or part of this technology war is going to last for decades, not years or months. So if anyone is going to say that the U.S. has won the technology war against China, I think it's a little bit too early to say this. It's a little bit too far-fetched to say that China has run out of its options. Of course, for now, China is in a very difficult position in terms of semiconductors because all the technology, software, designing tools to the production, manufacturing equipment, all kind of controlled by the United States and its allies. And China is trying very hard to catch up. But China does have its long-term kind of advantages. As we can see from Chinese experts, they're arguing that, you know, first of all, China's market is big enough. So if Chinese companies are good enough, they can develop their own standards and they can survive. Actually, if you look at Huawei, of course, Huawei is retreating from global markets. But you can't say like Huawei is already dead. Its revenues are quite stable. And also it is venturing to new areas like helping Chinese ports, coal mines, uh, hospitals to get better connected and to prepare for, for the new future. So one, China's big domestic market. And also secondly, there are some kind of like workarounds. For instance, if you look at uh, YMTC, China's biggest memory chip maker, I think one of its technology is just to combine like different chips into one so that it can have the same performance or same capabilities, even if it does not have the most advanced technologies. So you can see that it's an ongoing process. And the interesting thing is the, no one really can see the end at this moment. So we were waiting to see. Zhou Xin, one of your latest articles, you quoted Chinese strategist Wang Xiangsui and his book, One of the Free, China's Role in a Future World, in which he described a global future where free main blocks would emerge, uh, North America, Europe, and Panacea. How do you yourself see that playing out this year? Uh, well, this is very interesting because when the book was first published, I think this is a possible future landscape of the world in China's eye. You know, the whole world is divided into three parts. The United States, the whole Americas would be one block, and then the European EU led another block, and then China can play central role in Asia Pacific. And of course, this is a this is a very kind of like idealized word for China because China now it cannot be the dominant power in the world. So you know why don't we start from having one third of the world? But of course, in the last couple of years, as we all can see that you know this process proved to be much difficult than some had hoped in Beijing. Because unlikely in the United States, you know, when they have this North American alliance, United States sits together with Canada and Mexico, seems relatively easy. But it's very, very difficult for China to sit together with Japan and South Korea. <laughs> so this is, a, this is a problem. And also, you can see that from the recent news, South Korea and the, and the Japanese are singling out Chinese passengers, travelers, for COVID controls. So China immediately responded by tit for tat and also stopped the short-term visa, etc. So all these kind of evidence, you can see that it's still very, very difficult for China to play a kind of like 100% leadership role in this region. So I would say maybe that's still the future, but the, the process would be much slower and longer than we expected. Jason, I've got to pick up on two things you mentioned there. We speak about the three different blocks I think George Orwell did something very similar in a book called 1984 with the three blocks around the world. That seems like a curious echo through through literature. But also, you know, last we spoke on this podcast with you, 
You spoke about Samsung's massive investment in factories in mainland China. Do you see South Korea and Japan moving closer into Joe Biden's sphere? And it's not the North American sphere, it's Joe Biden's sphere for his you know, semiconductor push, A, to bring production onto onshore in the US and B, to restrict China's access to all the technologies. Do you see Japan and South Korea really moving towards that? Well, first of all, I think this book is more of like from the Romance of the Three Kingdom, which is a Chinese book 600 years ago instead of George Orwell. <laughs> so in the year of 2022, in the last year, I think one big trend, and it's particularly worrying for China, is that, as we can see, that Joe Biden has achieved a certain success in putting its allies on the same page in terms of technology work against China. On one hand, this is by uh, profits. For instance, the United States is saying, please come to invest in America. You know, we will give you some subsidies, etc. And so, you know, Samsung and these companies did follow TSMC. They now have huge plants in Arizona and in other parts of the United States. And on the other hand, it has started to really use its power to say, you know, we should stop exporting of these leading technologies and advanced equipments to China. And to China's displeasure, South Korea and Japan kind of followed the suit, uh, including Taiwan. So the Chip 4 alliance, although it's not a formal alliance yet, as you can see, in certain kind of ways, it's already functioning as an alliance. This is uh, pretty bad for, for China. As I explained to you, you know, China has put a lot of hopes on South Korea to play as kind of like a bridge between China and the rest of the world in terms of semiconductor industry. At the very beginning of the COVID outbreak, China has constantly reported that there are chartered flights flying hundreds or dozens of South Korean engineers to Xi'an or to Wuxi to look after the plants there. So at least, you know, from China's perspective, strategically speaking, China still needs South Korea and also China needs Taiwan so that technology can grow in a more healthy way. But unfortunately, you know, all these kind of like geopolitical and political things are getting to the middle of it. So... China's block of short-term visas, in my view, I think it'll be kind of like short-lived. Maybe a few months later, we can see that everything goes back to normal. So these days, there are views that China is actually trying to restart or refresh relations with the European Union, uh, with the recent leadership visits. And also, um, there have been some trade policy changes with Australia. Joshin, how does Xi Jinping's economic style change after three years of zero-COVID approach? Well, I think, first of all, it started actually from the G20. After the 20th Party Congress, you can see China is already reaching out to countries. And you can see that China is preparing to reconnect all these relations and to resume all these uh, exchanges. There are several reasons behind this, of course. So first, as you said, it's three years kind of like cut off all the ties, economic and also diplomatic ties, exchanges with the rest of the world. It's really bad for the economy. So China needs to resume this kind of like reapproachment. And also secondly, I think this is also reflected in you know, China's desperate need to re-engineer the domestic economy. China needs the uh, foreign capital, China needs foreign trade. After three years, lots of people's income has been reduced during the zero COVID. And many companies, producers are struggling for orders. So there is a very, very strong kind of domestic reason for China to say, let's reopen to the world, let's do business again. 
Josin, it's that time of year where all the Western media go running around looking for Chinese fortune tellers, talking about you know the year ahead, uh, the Lunar New Year. But in the hard logic world of geopolitics and technology, what is your forecast for the year of the rabbit that's coming ahead? What's your forecast for what's going to happen in China's relations with the world? It's very interesting because this year I think we are going to see like China again is going to resume its old role of becoming the gross engine for the world economy. Already in the last kind of like several weeks, you can see that the Chinese government is very clear that gross instead of COVID control will be the priority for, for the year of rabbit. And the Chinese government is willing to basically to pump money into the economy, even for like short-term recovery or rebound. And when the rest of the world are talking about like recession risks, you know, deflation, China is apparently saying, saying you know, we are ready to take some long-term risks to achieve some short-term results. So the 2023 will be a very good year for the Chinese economy. And based upon that, I think China is also becoming more determined that you should go back to the normal exchange and relationship with the rest of the world. Well, as always, we'll look for more of your reports, analysis on SEP.com. And after these three years on this podcast, thank you so much for being such a great friend and a great ally. Thank you, Jared. It's uh, it's a pleasure for me to take part on this podcast. And the last three years is a very good journey. This week on our sister podcast, Inside China, we explore what's going on in the mainland after Beijing dropped its zero COVID policy. All the conversation on dinner tables are about uh, when did you get COVID? What's your symptoms? Did anyone get sick? Do you got enough medication? It's very likely that the vast majority of the population will get infected this winter. So that's more than 1 billion infections. And that's 1 billion opportunities for the virus to evolve, to find a new direction. And three years into the pandemic, a new wave of misinformation is washing over China's social media amid fears of the XBB variant. Everyone is rushing to pharmacies and online e-commerce sites to buy these kind of diarrhea drugs because they believe that diarrhea is a particular symptom of the new variant, but it is not, and the public health experts have dispelled this. What comes next as hundreds of millions of Chinese people travel home for the Lunar New Year? Hear the latest episode for Inside China in your podcast feed right now. So now let me take you into one of China's geopolitical relationships that ties deeply into not just its domestic economy, but into what people are calling the Green Revolution, the huge demand for batteries to power everything from electric vehicles to the battery in your phone or Bluetooth speaker you might be listening to right now. On Tuesday this week, China's ambassador to Australia, Xiao Qian, called a surprise press conference in the nation's capital and had this to say about the relationship between Beijing and the Australian government. I hope that uh, we would come, as we are uh, um, stabilize our relationship, as we improve our relationship, as we de- develop our relationship between two countries, we'll come back to a normal kind of relationship. It's significant because it's been just over two years of China's unofficial economic sanctions if not trade war, on exports from Australia. Now, there's a bit of a narrative that these sanctions came about after Scott Morrison, Australia's then Prime Minister, said this back in April 2020. You believe that the World Health Organisation should have a power that uh, other UN organisations have, essentially to be like weapons inspectors, where it's not an option whether they're able to enter a country at a time like this. Do you think that's uh, where we need to go? 
If there is a virus of this nature that is believed to be of pandemic potential and very dangerous to the world, well, we need to know what's going on and fast, very fast. And, uh, and if we have that ability, that could, uh, could, have, could potentially save thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Of and we need to have that sort of ability. Now, in May of 2020, China brought in an 80% tariff on barley imports from Australia, one week after lifting its ban on imports of barley from the US. But there's more to this narrative than that. China delivered a list of 14 grievances to the Australian government in November 2020 that started with Morrison's demand for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, but also included the Morrison government revoking visas for Chinese scholars, interfering in China's affairs in Xinjiang, Hong Kong and Taiwan, police raids on the homes of Chinese journalists in Australia, Australia's screening of foreign investment for security risks, and something that happened in 2019, the banning of Huawei from developing a 5G network in Australia. But also in November of 2020, China imposed what it called anti-dumping tariffs on Australian wine imports and banned imports of rock lobsters from Western Australia. And in December 2020, China fully blocked coal imports from Australia. None of that was mentioned in Tuesday's very positive press conference from Xiaoqian. Now let me just recap with a couple of fun facts for background. China is Australia's largest economic trading partner, and Australia has a few things that China really needs. Australia is the largest exporter of iron ore in the world, and it will come as no surprise to you that China is its biggest customer. Now most of that iron ore comes from the state of Western Australia. For reference, that's basically the left-hand side of the Australian continent if you're looking at a map. But there's a few other things that China is very interested in when it comes to Western Australia. On the northwest coast of Western Australia is the town of Geraldton, which is the home of a rock lobster industry worth roughly 350 million US dollars per year. And up until November 2020, China purchased 94% of that yearly catch. Down south in Western Australia is what is called the wheat belt, where they also grow barley, roughly about 5 to 6 million tonnes of barley per year, and almost 90% of that barley grown there goes to China, up until November 2020. And just a short 600-kilometre drive inland from the capital city of Perth is the mining town of Kalgoorlie. Historically a gold mining town, but now a place just south of there called Mount Marion, which has been discovered to be the home of the world's second largest reserve of lithium. That's in addition to the world's largest lithium mine, which, surprise, just happens to be in Western Australia as well. The Greenbushes mine produces almost 2 million tonnes of lithium every year. And, fun fact, it's a joint venture between a mining company based in North Carolina and a mining company from Chengdu in China you're about to learn about. And here's another fun fact. China controls 65% of the world's processing of lithium. And that's where we're about to see some very interesting developments in the Chinese-Australian economic relationship with some big geopolitical ramifications. Candy Wong from the Political Economy Desk here at the SEMP flew to Western Australia late last year to attend a conference in Perth, but she also got to visit the newly opened lithium processing facility and brought back some very interesting stories that bring a lot more context to those comments from Ambassador Xiao Qian in Canberra earlier this week. Candy, welcome back. Great to see you here in the studio rather than when we usually meet on Zoom. Hi, Jarrett. Now, before I get into your reporting trip, can I ask you about what looks very much like a scoop story you published this morning? Am I right in thinking West Australian rock lobsters might be back on the menu in Beijing and Shanghai for the Lunar New Year? 
I can't say that for the Lunar New Year, but there are like a lot of signs that are telling us that lobster is going to be taken out from the unofficial ban before that China imposed on the Australian products. Somebody just told me, sent me over like a WeChat official post of the Consul General in Perth visited the Jerton Cooperative on Tuesday. So let me just recap. China's Consul General in Perth took the six and a half hour drive up to Geraldton where the, the lobster fishing fleet is for a bit of a meeting on the same day as China's ambassador to Australia held a press conference where he said, hey, let's turn a new page, turn a new leaf, so to speak. That's very interesting. So what have you heard in terms of these bans on West Australian rock lobster? As we know, China buys 94% of that catch. These bans might be lifted. Of course, everybody feels that it's a positive news with this visit alone. But before that, let me just remind you a little bit that, I mean, the South China Post basically keep following the news and then many of the rock lobsters from Australia actually just have been smuggled through Hong Kong or other places back into mainland Chinese market through some sort of grey market channels and stuff like that. But now what we can say is that, well, no grey channels anymore. It could be like normal as 2019 or before. The Chinese market of Chinese customers can just buy Australian lobsters again, maybe very soon. Well, just on that, I did actually message someone in Geraldton just this morning, just to check in and the the co-op there is keeping very quiet. So I think they're waiting to see some official movement before anything happens. And and as you referred to there, your previous story was that colleagues at the SEMP found out there was a lot of that lobster coming through Hong Kong, getting put on speedboats and sent across the border into mainland China. We'll follow that closely, of course, but this comes on top of some fairly heated speculation that China is also going to lift its ban on imports of Australian coal. And let me specify here, this is thermal coal, which is used in smelters to make iron and steel. What do we know about this? There were reports about China is going to lift the unofficial ban on thermal and cooking coal from Australia. We talked to different people after that, and there were like a surge of Chinese buyers increase on Australian coal. Well, we have to say that the percentage from Australia, the coal in China is not as much as like the other products, like lobster is like over 90%. But coal seems like to be the first product that got the lift, and especially is under the unofficial ban kind of category. And then what's next is more like lobster is also under the unofficial ban list. And then we're looking forward to some other official ban lift um, like wine and barley. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's, you know, two of those really big ticket items they would describe that as in Australia. And that is these unofficial sanctions, these massive tariff increases on Australian barley and wine. Australia made an official complaint to the WTO about this. What's the latest on that? So the Australian Prime Minister Albanese actually just talked to the media on Wednesday. It's just one day after Tian held the press briefing with the Australian media and also the visit of the lobster cooperative. He said there is a chance that Australia can just drop the formal complaints at WTO on these two products. And that's really positive news, both from the China side and the Australia side. But let's go back to this reporting trip you took to Perth, the capital of Western Australia, and the southern suburb of Quinana. I'm fairly sure most of our audience won't know about that name, but it is the home of a lithium processing plant there. 
51% owned by a company called Tianchi. Can you tell us a bit more background about this company? Tianqi actually is a 51% held by the Chengdu-based Tianqi Lithium Company. So it's like from China, the biggest stakeholder. And then the other 49% is held by an Australian company called IGO. So it's like a Chinese-Australian joint venture. Now, this Tianqi facility in Quinana is where they process the lithium that comes from the Mount Marion mine near Kalgoorlie. Now, you interviewed the Australian CEO of Tianqi, Raj Surendran. Here's a bit about what he had to say about this China-Australia relationship with this Quinana facility. It goes both ways. China is very significant for this business because the technology that relates to the processing of podumin to lithium hydroxide does not exist here in Australia. So, you know, it exists in China and it exists and it's a mature technology that has existed in China for a long time. So mm. in terms of this industry, China is very relevant. China, it is it is very important to have, from my perspective, Tianqi Lithium's years of knowledge and experience to help make sure that this plant runs the way it's been designed. From a mining perspective, obviously, there are, you know, Australia is, is one of the leading countries, probably right. the top three countries in terms of mining and mining methods, you know, being very proficient and very efficient at it. And, and China can learn from that as well, and China benefits from that as well. Candy, it's really interesting hearing about this aspect of the China-Australia relationship because it really flies against the narrative of conflict and sanctions and, you know, diplomatic freeze that's been going on for the last couple of years. But there's much more to this China-Australian relationship in the mining sector, isn't there? Right. Um, I also talked to another Australian listed company called Accelerate Resources. It's kind of like a company that mines manganese. And then they say, well, right now, basically, this mineral is also useful um, for producing lithium. It's because they can just stabilize the battery. And they always work with China. But for this new stream of business, they also look at China. It's just because China is like a 70% of the world's lithium batteries um, producer. And again, this is really interesting because on you know, several of our previous episodes, we've been reporting on Joe Biden's Made in America push for electric vehicle production. And of course, a huge part of that is the lithium needed for the batteries. What are your sources telling you about this interesting geopolitical relationship Australia has with China and with the US? Well, on one side, China is always the largest trade partner, economic partner of Australia, that the country just cannot afford to forego. And then on the other side, there are like a lot of other lobbyist interests for the US, and they're also kind of keeping a very close eye on the critical minerals in Australia as well, that Canberra basically has to just make a balancing act between these two. And you mentioned statements from Australia's Prime Minister Albanese about the WTO. This is on top of these last couple of months where Albanese has met with Xi Jinping. We've had the Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong meet with her Chinese counterpart. And Candy, you mentioned that Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese had made statements about the WTO case on barley and wine. But has he made any comment about lithium and critical minerals and China's involvement in the processing of those minerals? It's not yet there, but everything that happened over the past few days only already kind of paved the way for the trade minister Don Farrell's visit to Beijing later this year, and people just hoping to hearing more good news. The trade minister for Australia is going to fly to Beijing. Now, I just note here in his uh, official biography online that he actually also owns a vineyard uh, in the Clare Valley in South Australia. So 
I'm sure he's going to have a lot to talk about when he gets to Beijing in terms of trade. Candy Wong, thank you so much for coming in and having this discussion. And we look forward, of course, to more of your reporting at SEMP.com. Thank you so much, Jared. Well, that's the end of this, the final episode of the China Geopolitics Podcast. Kinling Lo, thank you so much for being here in the studio with me to present this. Well, Jared, surely you've got some montage from the greatest hits from the last couple of years. Greatest hits montage, you say? As a matter of fact, I do. How do you think if Biden wins, his approach to China will be different to Trump's? And he, uh, as you know, uh, President Xi will stand on the Tiananmen Square and have a huge military parade to showcase to the whole world how great China as a nation has become and the communist rule in the last seven decades. So nothing could go wrong for Beijing. In everything from Silicon Valley to Hollywood to California's university, the Golden State really is, as Matt says, ground zero for this new era in the US-China relationship. There was a ripple of anxiety, I think, yesterday that Hong Kong might be the where the axe falls on this. What's been the conversations you've been having with American business figures in Hong Kong over recent days? They all feel a bit worried about the national security law and also the escalating tensions between US and China. President Xi Jinping at the end of April uh, released a statement of condolences and offering Chinese support for India. But so far, everything that we've seen has been commercial aid. But the politics haven't changed that much. The drivers of U.S.-China tensions are going to continue, and the apprehensions of the American people about China are going to continue, and the apprehensions of China about the United States are Mm -hmm. going to continue. Now, you talk about separating this issue from the broader geopolitical discussion between the U.S. and China. Now, we've spoken a lot about the U.S. focus on Xinjiang and its major role in the global supply chain for solar panels. Did this come up in the discussions? Yeah, it did come up, in fact. They made a big fuss because I'm speaker, I guess. I don't know if that was a reason or an excuse because they didn't say anything when the men came. But China has really emerged as a unifying subject. You know, that's really playing out with how the Republican Party has really rallied behind Pelosi. No country is above others and no country should abuse its power to bully other sovereign countries. And I was going to do a special shout out to the various diplomats who have given us some very positive comments to our various reporters and bureaus around the world. And I can't go through them all here because Killing's giving me a special look like don't do the Oscars giant speech list. But listen, got to say a really big thanks to all the folks in the EU, in Beijing, in the US and Australia who work in jobs who can't possibly comment publicly but our devoted listeners to this podcast, we really appreciate you. And given that Kinling was one of the original presenters of the Inside China podcast, I think you can see where we're going with this. You'll be hearing more of the people you hear on this podcast in our Inside China podcast, which comes out mostly every week. But before I go, let me give a one big thank you to the journalists from the SMP around the world. Sichi Ji, Koala She, Maria Xiao, Candy Wong, Kushbu Razdan, Wendy Wu, Denise Zhang, Jacob Fromer, Mark Manier, uh, Owen Churchill, Chad Bray, of course, and the legion of experts from around the world who have given us their time to speak about China geopolitics on this podcast. But most importantly, thank you, our listeners. Thank you very much. It's been great. It's been interesting. It's been very educational. And thank you very much. Bye for now. Bye for now.